Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm here with our non-fiction specialist Joel, and we are sitting across from Georgie Dent. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming in. So I thought we'd just start with uh, the story of how you came to write the book. The book which is Breaking Badly, How I Worried Myself Sick. Yes. Um, So I, when I was 24, I was working as a lawyer um, at a big firm in Sydney and I was, I had been diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune condition, when I was 19. And between 19 and 24, I had mostly managed that condition. When I was at uni, it was less of a problem. When I moved to Sydney and started working full-time in in a stressful work environment, I just physically started to get sicker and sicker. Um, But I was adamant that my illness wouldn't get in the way of my life. So I basically just pretended that I didn't feel sick all the time. Um, And that didn't really end up being smart solution because I really did unravel quite quickly so I ended up um, about 18 months after I'd started at the firm I fell over one night with this vertigo attack and I was really dizzy and I, I sort of ended up going home early that night which was at about 7:30, and got home thinking right I'll wake up in the morning feeling better and I woke up the next morning and I didn't feel better I felt like I was sort of I had the worst hangover of my life combined with being on some sort of boat trip from hell Um, and then really I unraveled from there quite um, sort of within four months I was being admitted to a psychiatric hospital so that was the story Um, and that happened about 12 years ago and I have rebuilt my life physically mentally I've developed a new career Uh, and that was really where the idea for the book came was sort of that I would tell the story of how I did struggle with um, mental illness and anxiety is something I still absolutely have to manage I'm still on medication I still um, get help at different points Mm -hmm. it's not sort of a set and forget exercise that I fell apart once and then I've never had to think about my mental health again but I also thought that there was value in telling the story that it was actually possible with medication and therapy and making some pretty significant changes. I could, I made my life a lot better, you know. Absolutely. And there's that voice that you use throughout the book, particularly at the early part before your breakdown, that, that internal voice that's just constantly saying the absolute worst thing to you mm. and it's awful I found it really I have never suffered from anxiety but I, I found it really sort of triggering <laughs> in that like imagining that that's the burden you have to bear all the time um, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to that sense of that um, yeah so and it is I'm sorry that it was triggering I know yeah I don't have anxiety so no. I think yeah. the thing is it is I have been very brutally honest in this book Mm. Um, and and I do talk about the fact that uh, for me I was a natural worrier you know just even as a little kid I was always worried about things I made my sister sleep we always shared a room and she would always sleep on the side with the window because I was terrified of robbers that also makes me sound horrible because I was like well I don't mind if they take my sister (laughs) it wasn't that and she was happy to do that for me but I was just even from a a really young age I was terrified of a lot of things Mm. And combined with that, I did have, and, and I don't know why this is, but I, part of my worry was sort of around myself, that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't, I don't know, uh, 
and I was really mean to myself all the time. Yeah. And I didn't think that anything I did was good enough. Um, and I think that is very typical of sort of perfectionists. Mm. And one of the things that I came to learn through falling apart, but then also through a lot of the reading and things that I've done afterwards, is that saying I'm a perfectionist sounds like it's a terrific humble brag, that really what you're saying is I've just got amazingly high standards and I'm great at everything. And that is absolutely not what perfectionism is. Perfectionism is this sort of pervasive driving force that you have to achieve to be worth it. You know, you're not you're not sort of trying to tick boxes because it makes you feel good. You're ticking boxes because you have to, because you don't want to give anyone any reason to judge you. So you don't want to get less than an A plus in any aspect of your life. Mm. And that was I that was sort of the, the the framework that I had that I lived with for a long time. And I actually didn't think that there was another way to live. I thought everybody had the same voices mm. that I had. Um, in my head and it wasn't um, until really when I fell apart and had some very intensive therapy that I came to realise that being terrified all the time and being berating yourself constantly is actually not the way everyone has to live and better than that you can actually change it so if you you know zero in on what you're actually thinking and when I did that it was quite confronting because obviously I've written the book with the benefit of hindsight and so I could remember the sort of thoughts that I had all the time but at the time when I had those thoughts I wasn't able to tune in so I was just accepting it that every time I told myself I wasn't good enough that I wasn't doing well enough Mm. um, I believed it and I think one of the other things that was particularly toxic was that because I did have as I said earlier um, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 19 and at the same time uh, I was diagnosed with endometriosis and I had a number of surgeries for that Both of these conditions sort of provided proof in my mind that I was flawed, you know, physically flawed. Mm. And so that was very, I think that was part of why I was so driven to pretend those things didn't impact my life because I didn't want to be flawed. Mm. And it sort of presented in, uh, in terms of the way that you reacted to taking sick days. That was a big part of that early part, right? Yeah. I, uh, I really, I hated needing to take a sick day. And I, I, I just, in the mind that I occupied, and again, this is where the sort of perfectionist thing comes in, I was like, no one ever takes a sick day. Especially in a law firm. Like, yeah. I can't imagine carrying that kind of stress into not only a law degree and yeah. a legal job. Like, the, there's definitely yeah. that. Like, it is a high-pressure environment, and it's not... It, it isn't the kind of environment where lots of people are taking sick days. But still, I do think it was actually more damaging than the culture was my own perception of the mm. culture and my perception that everybody else never felt sick and no one ever needed to take a sick day. And I had a number of quite legitimate reasons. You know, there were days where I was in hospital with Crohn's, and the thing I found most difficult about those days was not the horrendous pain that I was in or the, you know, the horrendous physical symptoms I was suffering that had landed me in a hospital, but it was the mental anguish that I was having another day off work. And, and what that said to me was, you are so hopeless, Do you know, which is pretty horrible when you think about it because Absolutely. I was unwell. I was physically unwell. I was so unwell that I was actually in hospital. I was not... Um, Absolutely. And you, you say at one point that you cannot imagine being the kind of person who could fake a sick day to get a day off work. And that was really surprising to me because I just thought, oh, that's what it is. It's that sense of like, you you were so anxious about 
the, uh, the perception that other people had of you, yeah. even though they likely didn't have that perception I know. of you, yeah. that you couldn't even imagine being the type of person to fake it. Like, yeah. And yet you still didn't cut yourself a break. It's no. awful. I know. <laughs> I know. And like one of, one of the things that I came to realise pretty quickly after I was admitted to a psychiatric hospital uh, mm. was that the, the longer I was there, the more, you know, I, it was more shocking to me eventually that it took me to 25 to have a nervous breakdown mm. than it was that I had one. Because initially when I was sort of falling apart, I was like, what on earth is happening? Why is this happening? I can't believe this is happening to me. And then once I started unpacking what had been going on, I was like, I can't believe this didn't happen a long time ago, a really long time ago, because I was really living with unsustainable pressure. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that comes through, I think, in the book, is that, you know, you somehow got through your university course, even though you had multiple people sort of patronisingly telling you that you shouldn't study law. Um, and I think that's a sort of thread throughout that you really provide convincing counter evidence that so that you can inhabit the person you were while you're reading the book and understand why you didn't realise. I felt like um, the doctors and the, you know, some of the lawyers that you worked with, the partners early on, who were just awful men, yeah. <laughs> um, sort of provided that structure of why you would be stressed anyway and why sort of it's a relatable story generally even for people who haven't experienced what you experienced. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, um, I mean, there's more and more being written at the moment about uh, the experience of women in the health system and particularly around women's pain and you know some actually for some reason I was thinking about it yesterday so obviously I had endometriosis quite badly one of the gynecologists that I saw literally said to me he was like Georgie you're really attractive and you're studying law so I don't think it really matters if you've got this pain all the time like that's what he actually said to me when I was like I'm struggling with debilitating pain all the time and you know that was something that he said and obviously I knew at the time that that was deeply inappropriate oh and, and I, I mean I'm like I don't actually think that's the parameters of helping someone like if they're doing a degree and you think they're attractive therefore it doesn't matter that they're living with, absolutely know, it was, was mind or that doctor who called you a cappuccino kind of girl yeah that oh, was that, that was just, horrendous I've been hearing so many stories from friends of mine like close friends of mine recently having very similar issues where like they'll go into like a doctor's appointment mm. and then just get this completely unreasonable feedback mm. when all they're trying to do is take care of themselves in the mm. first place. Yeah. To be treated with that level of condescension. Like I'm really angry about it right now because <laughs> I'm just I'm hearing about it so much more. Yeah. yeah. Well the other thing that really was toxic for me was one of the specialists that I saw for Crohn's. So one of the things with Crohn's is that it's not there's not a perfect treatment for it. So it's managed more often than it is treated um you know there's a variety of different medications that that people are on but often those medications bring with them fairly horrendous side effects and it's often sort of a case of you know which is the lesser of two evils you're not it's very rare with Crohn's that you're dealing with a perfect scenario mm. um but that's not that wasn't limited to just me I'm not the only person with Crohn's who had that situation but one of the specialists I saw said to me one day he said oh you are a heart sink patient you know your when I say your name on the list my heart sinks because I think oh god here we go and that was horrendous for me as a sort of chronic people pleaser I was like 
I'm the worst patient. I don't do what I'm supposed to do as a patient. My body doesn't respond to treatment. And so I was, I was really torn because I was caught in this world where I, I knew that how I felt physically wasn't right. I was dealing with illness, you know, on a really significant illness on a daily basis. And I didn't want to be dealing with that. So I sort of at work was trying to keep up this facade that I was okay. But then also with the doctors, I was trying to pretend that I can cope. And I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not a heart sick patient. Like me, please like me, is basically the mentality that I went into so many of my appointments with. Um, and, you know, ultimately these patterns of behaviour and thinking were really, really corrosive. To your diagnosis, ultimate diagnosis, and actually getting the help you need—that's what mm. I. But I don't think that the way that you behaved was just because you are a perfectionist, no. or that, or that you were anxious. I think they're common to particularly women, and it's a very relatable part of your story. Is that yeah. you go into the doctor and you try and put on a brave face, but actually. You need to be honest about those feelings, otherwise you don't get the help you need. Yeah. That's, but that is a failing of the medical system as much as it is yours. Yes, absolutely. And I think, so the huge turning point for me came when I saw a 70-year-old physician um, in Lismore. That's the town where my parents live. And basically, I moved back in with them after, um, once the dizziness set in, I sort of, for about a month, I tried to keep working and deal with it, but I just couldn't. <clears throat> so I moved back in with my parents and, you know, we was, I was seeing so many different people, doctors, specialists, anyone who could try and help us. And the turning point was this physician who sort of said to me, he was kind, you know, he looked at me and he said, Georgie, I'm so sorry for what you're experiencing. And that alone, that sentence made, I got tears in my eyes because I was like, he's actually seeing me and he's realising that this is not good and because so many of the appointments where I had been where things weren't good I wasn't as sick as I was as I got but I wasn't well none of the doctors ever said to me you are doing a great job gosh it's hard mm. you know you, this is not an easy condition and this physician said to me I'm so sorry for what you're experiencing and then he said look in my medical experience of treating patients for nearly 50 years whenever I have someone present with unexplained physical symptoms the explanation is always stress. And he said, I see it with patients with diabetes that they'll have this spike and there's no, everything else, you know, their medication. And then I ask them what's going on in their life and it turns out, you know, that their mother has had something horrendous happen to them or there's something going on at work. And he, he said, I'm not saying this isn't real. What you're going through is real. But I think we've got to examine um, stress and anxiety for you because mm. I think that's a part of what's happening. And I, I knew, I believed him. I, I, it was it really was such a light bulb moment in mm. so many ways because he was empathetic but also he looked at the whole picture and Absolutely. he said and that was the first time that I had an inkling of hope that maybe there was something that could help me and he it seemed he sort of gave you permission to accept that mental illness was a real illness yeah and so and, and was contributing to physical symptoms Yes. And you could treat it. Yes, yes. Like that, and I think that's really common. I've, I've lived with someone with generalised anxiety disorder and uh, that, and this was many years ago, and the prevailing thing at the time is that, oh, no, no, I don't need those. Only crazy people need yeah. like medication for, for yeah. anxiety. And 
I look back on that and I just think that from people I know now with anxiety and how that's being treated, it's just, it does seem to have been a bit of a sea change there. Yeah, well, I think, you know, so the thing is, this did happen um, 12 years ago. And mm. so there was a different, uh, the conversation around mental, mental health and mental illness has changed, mm. certainly in that time. But I also did have a real blind spot about what anxiety was mm. and also whether it could have physical symptoms. So one of the sort of tension points that I had with my mum at this point was because even before I got the dizziness she was really worried about me because my Crohn's was terrible and she had tried to sort of say to me on a few occasions you know darling do you think maybe stress is a big problem at the moment and I was like don't you understand if I didn't have Crohn's I wouldn't be stressed because da 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 so if we can just get my physical health better and then when I was actually sick and I was at home you know one afternoon she came into my bedroom and sort of said she printed off a checklist from Beyond Blue which was quite um, new then it was one of the websites and it was basically a checklist for anxiety and she said you know gee I had a look at this and I thought maybe it's worth exploring and I was furious with her and I had I got so angry at her and I just sort of said you know how dare you minimize what I'm experiencing and of course I'm anxious and stressed right now because I haven't been able to walk properly for three months I've got this horrendous dizziness I'm sick you know if we can get those things better I won't need to be worried anymore and she that was really hard for her and I messaged um, Nick, who was my boyfriend then, but he's my husband now. And I was like, can you believe this? Um, you know, mum's trying to pretend that I've got anxiety and that's, you know, the root cause of my problems. And we ended up having quite a funny text message situation. And he was like, have you even looked at the checklist? And I was like, I don't need to look at the checklist. And then I looked at the checklist. And I'm like, okay, I tick every box. But I was really, I really did believe that the only reason I ticked all those boxes was because I was so physically unwell mm. that I had become anxious I didn't realize that actually it could happen the other way too that I was so anxious well, they can feed each other exactly that they can feed each other and so you know that was the real turning point when this doctor sort of said to me yeah. these physical symptoms may well be the result of the enormous amount of stress that you've been living under absolutely so I don't want to give um, potential readers the sense that this is just a doom and gloom <laughs> purely about your mental breakdown mm. it is also about how you pulled yourself out of that and your you know romance with your boyfriend and now husband yeah and how wonderful he was through the through that experience and you know and your life now I wondered if you could sort of maybe finish us up with a bit of a picture yeah. of how <laughs> yes. how life affirming this story really is yeah well and I, I think I do think that that's true like it is obviously it is dark in parts mm. this book but I think it is also ultimately a story of hope uh and of, of sort of of what is possible because when I you know the, the the benefit I suppose of having hit rock bottom was that I was really motivated to do whatever it took to get better so once I sort of had that diagnosis and I was admitted to rehab you know to a psychiatric hospital it suddenly all made sense to me and I mean I, I, I don't want to be flippant because obviously it took a lot of work and I didn't get better overnight but it was like this big giant light bulb went on and I was like oh my goodness of course you have been an absolute wreck for six years because no one could live with what you have lived with and I sort of particularly doing group therapy was really enlightening for me mm -hmm. because you know you listen to other people's story but also my own story when I was telling people what happened suddenly I was like I'm not a malingerer 
and I'm not lazy and I'm not, I'm actually been working really hard and I've been able to maintain a, you know, a level of productivity that other people couldn't in that situation. And I don't need to be applauded for that, but I certainly don't need to beat myself up. Mm. And so I really did, it opened my eyes and I realized that I had been making my life so much more difficult than it needed to be. Mm. And I, I, you know, I resigned from the law firm, which I was terrified of doing that, even though it wasn't a job I wanted and it wasn't working for me, but it felt like such a big thing because I'd studied really hard and I'd got this big job and it was well paid, but I hated it. Mm. And I, I suddenly thought, I don't need to do that. Why? Why do I need to do that? You know, and I was, I was 25. We didn't have kids or anything at that point. So it was very, we didn't have a mortgage. I I didn't need to have that job. Mm. And so I sort of, my life really did open up and I was very fortunate that Nick was incredibly supportive of me throughout the ordeal. And I said to him on so many occasions, just forget about me. You go and live your life. You do not need this. And he was adamant that I was going to get better and that he didn't want to not be with me. And so that was the other amazing thing that when I did start to get better and we could sort of be back living together, I was just so grateful that I could have that life you know that I could be with Mm. him again and that life could be fun and I I started taking my physical health really seriously I'd never been a fitness fanatic and I'm still not but I started swimming a couple of times a week I did yoga I liked walking anything that physically felt good I loved doing it because Mm. I'd been trapped out of life for so long that being able to do these simple things that gave me so much joy was actually quite amazing Mm. and so when I moved back to Sydney I started working at David Jones selling clothes for a couple of months just because I really I sort of needed to gradually uh, return to life and then I'd been doing that for about four and a half months when I started to look for full-time work again or you know a sort of grown-up job and I had really wanted to do journalism I'd always thought about it Um, but because I'd done law and done well at that I sort of ended up going down that path but I started to look around and a friend actually said to me, look, BRW Magazine uh, offering three-month research contracts at the moment. You work with journalists, you help prepare the research for the Rich 200. Why don't you apply? And I thought, well, that'd be perfect because then I can have, I'll be in a newsroom um, at Fairfax and I'll see whether I like it. Um, and I ended up getting one of those research positions. And on the first day, I met the editor-in-chief and sort of said, I didn't say by the way, I've just had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but I did say, I'm actually a lawyer and I'm looking for a career change and this is what I'm, you know, I love the idea of being a journalist. And I was very fortunate that he wanted someone to be covering the legal sector um, more in more detail than they were currently. And so eventually I did the three-month contract and then he put me on the Fairfax training pro- I had to go through interviews and things like that, but he put me on the Fairfax training program and then I started as a reporter at BRW Magazine. Um, and... You know, I within a year of having had that breakdown, I was back living in Sydney. I was in the best physical health that I'd ever been in because I was not suffering from stress and anxiety. I was treating myself well. I had this job that I absolutely loved. You know, I pinched myself every day that I got this job. Um, and I only got that job because I was sort of willing to step back from what I was supposed to be doing. And I worked at David Jones selling clothes because it made me feel good. Mm. You know, it didn't, it didn't matter that I wasn't ticking any great box of achievements. Mm. And then I looked for a research position that was for, you know, uni students effectively. And I wasn't a uni student. I'd done law. I'd been admitted as a solicitor. But I was like, do you know what? I want to give it a go. And I did. And, 
you know, the thing is, my life now is very far from perfect. No one's life is. And I wouldn't want to paint it like that. But Nick and I have got three gorgeous girls. Uh, and there was certainly a lot of time when I was having all of the problems with endometriosis that I didn't think that a family was going to be particularly possible. Mm. Um, but it is. And I have stayed working in media and I've, I'm really fortunate to have a job that I absolutely am passionate about and love uh, and I think that that part of the story is is worth reading for mm. because I think you know I really did change my life and mm. it got things got so much better absolutely well thank you so much for coming in Georgie and for writing this wonderful book thank you so much for having me and um, for supporting it I really appreciate it great and you can buy Breaking Badly by Georgie Dent on booktopia.com.au Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.